Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And in thinking about the worship service as a conversation with the living and true God, it's important that we view it that way, and one of the consequences of it is that when we come to the reading of the Scriptures in this way and then into the sermon even, we can comfortably say that uh, this is God speaking to you. And the sermon, even, in so much as it agrees with the Word of God, is God speaking to you. So, people of God, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the living and true God declares unto you, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. O Lord, would you give us faith? For Christ's sake, amen. I like to consider the consequences of the world in which we live. I mean, if you've been in the church for a while now, you know that I I love that kind of part of the world to think about. I enjoy reading science material. I enjoy kind of reading sociology and seeing kind of the consequences of the world uh, and the way that life is. And one of those I think that's probably not being talked about enough certainly is the consequence kind of of technology as a whole but technology on really the nature of the human soul. Not all technology is bad, obviously. I'm very thankful for a lot of things. But I think one of the unintended consequences of having kind of this proliferation of technology, certainly in my lifetime, is that what it's done is kind of in so many ways taken every part of our lives and poisoned it and polluted our lives so that everything has kind of become mundane. 
Like everything is kind of, well, boring. (laughs) Because in so many ways, one of the weird consequences of technology is that everything is always the same. We're never away from our email, we're never away from our texts, we're never away from our phones, we're never away from being on call, we're never away from being on duty, we're never away from Twitter, we're never away from Instagram, we're never away from TikTok or Snapchat, we're never away from Netflix, we're never away from HBO, we're never away from Amazon, we're never ever away. And one of the byproducts of this kind of unintentionally, and I think in a way that most people don't even think about or realize, is that it's, it's taken pretty much all of life, our highs and our lows, and it's kind of reduced them all to something just slightly below Midland, so that it's just a life of just inane, mundane forgetfulness. That's why I suspect so much of our culture is constantly manufacturing some sort of faux outrage. It's an attempt to chase something bigger than the ordinary, something bigger than just the mundane blah room temperature water of life. And I'd love to pretend that that stays kind of out there, outside, but it has in so many ways leaked into the church where we are more often than we would like to admit a people who think of Christianity in those same terms of the boring, sameness, mundane, room temperature water. which is extremely inconvenient when we get to passages like this. I think this is probably my favorite passage in the book of Isaiah. And I think probably more than most that we read, it challenges how we even think about life at all. Because there's nothing in this passage after the first six words or so in the English That's mundane. Everything is fantastic. It's foreign. It's other. It's holy. And as a result, passages, a passage that tends to make us wrestle and struggle. But I do enjoy where it starts, remembering that we've talked about the first five chapters of Isaiah largely function as the introduction. He's been like a master author, the one that he is, telling us kind of where he's headed and what he's talking about, and it's been this kind of series of contrasts of wrestling through our God who's building something great and beautiful and enjoyable and blessed and delightful in the people of God which have betrayed Him and turned from His beauty and turned from His grace and turned from His goodness and are destroying both themselves and the world around them. And in the midst of this conundrum of God's building and God's people destroying, His wrath comes in as the great purifier. That's the backdrop of where we get to chapter 6. And it starts with words that we, as again, most of us not knowing our Bibles super duper well, blow by. I mean, we know these words, many of us, as the words that introduce us to the interesting part. 
in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, okay, I read that, and then I'm into the rest of it. But that actually would be a very significant thing kind of in the, the portrait of Israel because of who Uzziah was and what he represented for them. Uzziah was made king at 16. He reigned for, I think, 52 years, if I've got my memory right on that one. He first part of his reign was co-regent with dad. The latter part of his reign was co-regent with son. And the first part of his reign was done with the prophets actually guiding him, Zechariah being one. He was, by and large, known, especially at the beginning of his life, for being a both good and great king. He was the kind of man that if you were a Jew, you would have probably pinned all of your hopes on. Here's the teenager that showed up. The teenager who's got the crown. Here's the teenager that's going to be the guy. He's going to be the one who leads us back into greatness. He's going to be the one who would lead us into health. He'll be the one who leads us into prosperity. He'll be the one who leads us into safety and into joy. This will be the king that we've been hoping for. Great David's greater son. And honestly, for the first part of his reign, you would have been highly inclined to believe that. You have a northern kingdom that's a disaster. They've turned from God, and here you have what seemingly at the beginning... He's a great king. The problem is, while he begins well, he doesn't end well. And rather than staying the course, instead of walking the path, instead of remaining faithful to his God, he begins to usurp authority. Even 2 Chronicles 26, we find out that he tries to act like a priest and ends up being cursed by God. And spends the end of his reign, why his son has to be regent with him is because he spent the end of his reign with leprosy, hiding away with no other humans able to see him or talk to him. He was an object of the wrath of God, even as a, quote, good king. Even beyond that, he didn't tear down the high places, and so they continued to worship false gods. And so what you have in Uzziah is a picture and portrait of massive disappointment. Squandered potential. Broken dreams. You see, the starting point of Isaiah's ministry, the starting point of chapter 6, is with a people who would have been dealing with, in so many ways, heartbreak that their life hasn't turned out the way they wanted it to be. That the happy life that they wanted wasn't the happy life that they had gotten, that the life of stability they hadn't gotten, that the life of prosperity they hadn't gotten, that the life of obedience they hadn't gotten. Here, the great king, hopefully, (laughs) turns out to be the dud. I like that. I like that a conversation about the glory of God and one of the most gripping and beautiful portraits of God's glory is preceded by like scalding emotional disappointment. <laughs> that searing just letdown of life. The disappointment that I didn't want to be here. I never wanted my life to look like this. 
I find that comforting because in a room this size, it means we have some that find themselves in that condition today. Whereas they contemplate their life, I never wanted it to be this way. I didn't want to be this kind of person. I had dreams of being a better man, of being a better father, of being a better husband, of my life being different. Going back to kind of the mundane consequence of technology, I think that's so much of where we live is we live with this very real disappointment that our lives are not what we want them to be. And so what we try to do is distract ourselves with entertainments. To distract ourselves with the pleasures of our lives. Jude says we distract ourselves with the pleasures of our senses, of our flesh, our bodies. And I love that kind of part of what we see in Isaiah 6 is really the the right remedy. For those of us that are battling that um, searing disappointment, that perhaps even frozen part of our heart that lives with just the discouragement of it's not supposed to be this way. This is not what my life is supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to get that disease. I mean, I know it's common, but it was supposed to affect other people. It wasn't supposed to affect me. My marriage wasn't supposed to look like that. I mean, it's other people's. It's not mine. That it's with that backdrop that the Lord kind of grabs us by the ears and pulls us into a very different place. I mean, what a transition. (laughs) In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I mean, that's a car that's motoring one direction really fast, dropped into reverse, going the other way. I mean, what a change of gears, what a a change of emotion that here in the midst of my discouragement, in the midst of my sadness, in the, the midst of my anger, in the midst of the life that I don't like the way it's going, Isaiah sees God. Well, he doesn't actually see him in the way that we would often see of just perceiving him in a nice and easy way. Instead, he, he perceives really the occasion of his glory. He perceives the occasion of his glory and what you have in verses 1b through 3 is really kind of an explanation of the glory gap between who God is and who mankind is. He doesn't actually describe what God looks like. So as a result, this is one of those great places to use a bit of um, God-given imagination to think through kind of as he's describing, because it doesn't describe what he looks like, so you can't imagine him, so don't do that. You shouldn't imagine what God looks like. But what happens is he's brought into the temple of God, and you get the impression that what happens as is done is like the doors are thrown open in the back, and he begins to be brought into God's presence, and he makes it kind of up to the door jam and begins to describe what he sees. 
And of course, what he sees and what he perceives is beyond what vocabulary can capture. It's beyond what a human mind can fully understand, but he uses the language of his people and the language of the land to try to capture just the tiniest little portion of the beauty and wonder and grandeur that he sees. So the Lord, seated high on the throne, you're going to find out he can't actually perceive who's there. He's hidden in both darkness and light simultaneously. But he sees uh, high and lifted up on that throne. It's inspiring and awesome. It's profound and scary that this high throne above all of us little ones beneath and the robe of God drapes down to the floor, filling the temple both with its presence and its glory. The heaviness of the presence of God. Verse 2, he begins to describe the servants that God has appointed to function in his holy throne room where God is king, seated on his throne, high and lifted up. Now he goes to describe the servants and so he uses what's functionally an invented word. The seraphim, we don't translate it really very well because it means the burning ones. Literally, it's the burning ones. It's not a title. It's a descriptor of what these creatures are, and as the best we can tell, they're creatures composed by every indication, something similar to fire. I don't know. Maybe it looks like that. Maybe they actually are. I don't know. I can tell you that everybody that sees them says they look like they're on fire. That's a pretty cool servant. And then when it's describing what they look like, they have six wings, and their wings begin kind of a lesson in glory. That here, these creatures that for every indication we're going to say are composed in some fashion of the most purifying fire you can imagine, and they themselves are so inadequate to the task that they are like, I'm out, i got to hide, I can't be in this, it's too big. And so with their, face, with their wings, what do they do? They have two that are covering their faces so they can't see God because God's glory is too great even for his servants of fire to see him. And they have two wings where they're hiding their bodies so God can't see them. And two wings where they fly so they don't even touch the ground that he resides upon. And you get the impression they're flying kind of all throughout the room. And as they fly all throughout the room, they sing. And they sing in the most beautiful and overwhelming sense of music. Holy, 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 proclaiming the character of this God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the covenant-keeping God of hosts. The entire earth is full of His glory, and their song is so big and so loud and so overwhelming that verse 4, again, you imagine He stepped up to get ready to go into the room. It's so loud that even the door jam is shaking. They sing with such majesty, it feels like the building is going to collapse on him. And oh yeah, by the way, the entire place is filled with smoke. It's filled with the glory of God. 
This is probably, again, referencing Psalm 18, where God hides in darkness. He uses the smoke to cover his glory. And I love that you get to see the gap between a people that show up discouraged and disappointed and wounded and weary and broken and sad and wishing everything was different and then to be brought into something that actually is different. The very glory of God. I think one of the things that, again, maybe perhaps limits a portion of our understanding or appreciation of the passage here is that we've kind of forgotten in some fashion the link between glory and beauty and joy. We've been cultivated as a nation to find joy in stupid and small things by and large. But every once in a while, we have those moments in our lives where we actually get to appreciate glory and beauty and joy all in the same moment. The first time they hand you your baby in the hospital, and you're like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's the most glorious moment of my entire life. This will go with me until I die. We forget that perhaps what Isaiah is describing here is so different from everything that we experience, but it's so much more beautiful and more pleasurable, more desirable, more delightful than anything we have ever understood. The scriptures are very clear that the fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. The Scriptures are very clear that the fullness of blessing is found in the presence of God. The Scriptures are clear that the fullness of human gladness is found in the very presence of God. And what's being presented here in this first part of Isaiah 6 is the gap between the life that I so often live and the glory of God that I so desperately need to see. Well, his response is not surprising, but emotionally horrible. He does what I think probably any of us would do if we actually got to see this with the eyes of faith in the way that he's doing, is he panics. (laughs) He panics. Having seen the beauty of God in front of him, having seen the glory of God, again, I mean, just think any one of these angelic beings, every time people see him, they just about drop dead from terror. They're the least terrifying thing in the room because God is there. He is a like full-blown panic, like, oh no, woe is me, right? I can't really say that one loud enough in the right way. The microphone will blow out the speakers. 
And this is not delivered in a like kind of pondering, hmm, I wonder about my life. Maybe woe is me, right? This is a man who's crying out and realizing my life is done. I'm over. It's finished. All of the silly things that I brought with me, they don't matter anymore because I've seen the real thing and it's about to consume me. Woe is me. And I love that actually in Isaiah's response here, we get a wonderfully biblical portrait of repentance. Look at his sentences. There's, a, there's this beautiful kind of arrangement to them. He begins with grief. Oh no, I'm done for. The grief is immediately followed with honesty. This is the hardest part of sin, truthfully, let's be clear. Being honest about it. We like to lie about it. We like to hide it. Woe is me, for I'm lost. Why am I lost? Because I am a man who sins, and I come from a people who sin. It's grief followed by honesty, followed by description of what the problem is. You know why that's a problem? (laughs) Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and I am a sinner in every way. I suspect, if we're going to be honest, most of us in the room probably don't relate emotionally to verse 5 very well. Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We don't think of our sin as being that bad, do we? We really don't. We think of our sin as being tacky. We think of our sin as perhaps being a bit low class. Occasionally, we might think of it as perhaps even being self-destructive in some fashion. but we've lost this idea that our sin in some fashion is a violation of the glory of God. A glory that in some fashion I was designed to be a participant in because I'm made in His image. I'm made in the image of this glorious God. I'm I'm supposed to be a partaker in that through Christ Jesus and my sin is striking at that very reality in my life. God's blessing, God's glory, God's presence, His very being with me. My sin, big and small, heinous or seemingly not, major or minor, known or unknown, public or private, my sin is the problem. And for so many of us, we just don't care. Very quickly. Verses 6 and 7 are both a reality and in many ways a prophecy. A foreshadowing. A sermon in their own right. A lesson. Isaiah acknowledges he's a dead man. He's a sinner in the presence of a sinless God. He is 
a sinner in the presence of the one who cannot ignore sin and indeed will destroy it. He is a dead man walking at this point. He's not being melodramatic. In any other circumstance, this is the last moment of his life for the wrath of God would consume him. For our God cannot be in the presence of sin. Instead, though, God does something. Well, Isaiah is a dead man walking. The Lord functionally makes him alive. He sends one of his holy servants of fire <laughs> to with tongs take a burning coal from the altar. I love that. Why do he use tongs? I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. I'd guess his hands are probably more of a problem than even the thing he's touching. But takes a coal from the altar of God, touches it to the mouth of Isaiah, and teaches him a lesson. You can't fix yourself. You can't make it better. You cannot make your sin go away. You cannot fix your heart. You cannot fix your soul. You cannot fix your record. You cannot fix it. Only God can. And in doing so, he touches Isaiah with the coal. And you have this wonderfully tender sentence at the end of verse 7. Behold! This has touched your lips. Your guilt's taken away. And your sin atoned for. God teaches him that if sin is going to be fixed, it has to be God that does it. It has to be the sovereign Lord that saves sinners. It has to be God that redeems people. It has to be God that takes away sin. It has to be God that cleanses the unrighteous. And I love that this is setting us up, really, for the New Testament, isn't it? It's setting us up for the, the kind of first big surprise that you expect Jesus to show up again in glory, and instead, he shows up in a manger from poor Jews. And instead of living the great and grand and glorious life as king of the Jews, which he was, he lives as a suffering servant until he's taken to the cross where he willfully and freely gives up his life so that he would be the one who resolves the wrath of God for us. So that he would be the, the ultimate answer to verse 7. Behold, this has touched your lips. Beyond that, behold, he has touched your heart. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. He's made you new. Christ, the cleansing Savior. Now some of us, as I mentioned came into the room this morning de dealing with that life of disappointment or perhaps even despair. Where the life that we want doesn't match the life that we've been given. Where the way that we think it ought to be doesn't match the way that it is. And I love the remedy. is the glory of God. If you spend your days trying to correct the disappointment in your life with earthly things, you will just 
be more miserable. It's like trying to heal poison with more poison. Ain't going to work. The solution to your discouragement, the solution to your despair, the solution to your disappointment in your life is at its core an appreciation of the glory of God. That our God is the glorious God who makes no mistakes, who keeps covenant forever. But beyond that, as it sets us up to understand, I think, verses Uh, six and seven more carefully and clearly is that the natural temptation for those that are dealing with this sort of kind of disappointed life is to hold everybody else responsible. It's your fault that you didn't make me happy. It's your fault that you didn't make me happy. It's your fault that you didn't make me happy. And as a result, we, we very rarely get to these kind of woe is me points where we begin to see that, no, actually, it's not the other people that the issue here. It's my heart. It's my heart that's the problem. It's my heart that's the problem. It's my heart that longs for all the wrong things and values all the wrong things. I'm the biggest piece of the problem. Now, that's not to say that other people don't sin. They do. It's not to say that other people don't make your life difficult. They do. It doesn't mean to say that other people don't hurt you or take advantage of you. They do. But your sin's the issue, friend. And so is mine. Which is why it's such a good news and and such a, a joyful piece of hope that our God is the God who saves sinners of whom we are the foremost because we know our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We delight in you. We confess our sin to you. Lord, we particularly apologize for how much we love ourselves and how contented we are with ourselves being the solution to our own problems. Would you please forgive us for Jesus' sake, and would you please give us the eyes of faith that we would be able to see his beauty a little bit more clearly. We ask for Jesus' sake, amen.